Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBurge on Faith Radio. If we're going to fly, we fly. Well, again, good morning and good Thursday morning, that is. I'm Paul Perot filling in for Carmen. This is Mornings with Carmen on Faith Radio. And uh, first off, uh, again, thanks from Carmen for all your prayers as she's again recovering from her uh, melanoma surgery this past Tuesday. Just that little spot removed. She's taking it easy. <laughs> she didn't want to come on because the meds kind of make things a little foggy. Of course, I'm kind of foggy this morning. Third day in doing doing this, Ryan, and I'm just kind of rain cloudy you you sound great so far though so no one would ever know <laughs> well i like to be honest and transparent no, with everybody fair, yes. so hey our uh growing your faith verse of the day if you weren't listening just a few moments ago psalm 143 verses 8 and then it kind of continues into 10 with that but let me hear your unfailing love each morning for i am trusting you show me where to walk for I give myself to you. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your gracious spirit lead me forward on a firm footing. I had to double check because, you know, some of these last psalms of the 150 psalms that there are, various authors. This one is a psalm of David. I, I was thinking, it's got to be David. It is so much like him. Uh, David, yes, wanted to do God's will. He wanted to, he, he gave himself to God fully. But he also wanted to hear the same from God. I love how God is not, or rather David is not just asking, God, give me marching orders, give me direction, show me where to walk, lead me forward on firm footing. Yeah, he wanted those. But he wanted to hear about God's unfailing love every morning. David wanted more than marching orders. He he wanted the reassurance. Just as he was committed to God, he wanted to know God was committed to him. And he knew that. He just wanted to hear that again. He wants to know that because he loves God the one who's leading him graciously. He wanted to know that God delights in going with him, and he does. I know there's a lot of people right now down in Florida wanting to know that right now. Quick update on what I have anyway. As of, well, about uh, 5 a.m. Eastern time, so a couple hours ago, Hurricane Ian, now a tropical storm, it was uh, about 40 miles southwest of Orlando, but still uh, storm surge warnings in effect. Uh, The south of uh, Tampa Bay, that is, uh, Longboat Keys, uh, down, down to the tip of the peninsula. Those storm surges, amazing. The rainfall's been... Pretty amazing, too. Uh, Lahai Acres had 14.42 inches of rain. Warm Mineral Springs had over 11 inches of rain. Some places still could see over 20 inches of rain because the rain is continuing to fall. The uh, monster storm has flooded roads, homes, uprooted trees. I saw pictures of that this morning. Sent cars floating down streets. Nearly 2.5 million people are homes, that is, and businesses without power as of this morning according to poweroutage.us. Power crews from Florida and other states are working to restore power as fast as possible, according to Governor Ron DeSantis. Meanwhile, as the, as the well, now tropical storm, Ian, is getting ready to finish crossing the peninsula and get out over the warm Atlantic waters, it may start strengthening again and then heading northward. So uh, other states, Georgia, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, 
They've all declared state of emergencies. President Biden says local leaders in Florida have been given all the resources that they have asked for in dealing with the hurricane damage. Speaking yesterday, Biden said they've com- uh, they've been completely responsive to Governor Ron DeSantis in terms of emergency response efforts. Uh, the president will add or added he'll uh, meet with FEMA officials in Washington later today to get updates. Meanwhile. Christian relief organizations such as Samaritan's Purse, uh, Send Relief, which is the Southern Baptist Convention's relief arm, Salvation Army, and many others are heading in and working with local churches in Florida help provide help, uh, to provide help through them uh, to those affected. Now, if uh, you've worked through any of these relief agencies in the past, you may want to check with them to see if uh, they're active in Florida. Check with your church to see if they're connected and responding through your denominations or your church association's relief arm. This is one of those all-hands-on-deck kind of things. So time for us to get active in helping out those affected. Well, again, Mornings with Carmen. It's Thursday morning. That means Ben Johnson is coming in, our rights writer. And we're going to be talking about rights and especially about abortion. As we're less than six weeks away now from the election, abortion is a key topic. But we also want to step back and look at what a church has done in incorporating special needs people into their community life. It's It's a beautiful story, and it actually speaks more than just, oh, a church is doing a nice thing. It really speaks to something so much deeper. We're going to talk about that, too, here in just a few moments. Mornings with Carmen here on Faith Radio. This is my right, a right given by God, to live a free life, to live in freedom. Again, thank you for listening to Mornings with Carmen. That's the familiar music we have whenever Ben Johnson, the rights writer, comes on. Good morning, Ben. Good morning, Paul. Uh, it's good to have you with us. Um, I, You know... I like to follow you on, on Twitter and other social media just to see what you're uh, doing. And you shared a beautiful story um, this, this just a few days ago about a uh, Orthodox church and how there's, there's people who live in the area who are autistic. And not only do they just welcome them in, they, they make them part of their community. I want you to share the story. It's so beautiful. It really is beautiful. I mean, to the extent that I, I practically had tears in my eyes reading it. Uh, and that's not a, a frequent occurrence with me necessarily. Uh, there's an Orthodox Christian church in the Hamptons in New York, uh, the Dormition of the Virgin Mary Greek Orthodox Church. And nearby, they have an autistic home. That's sort of a, a story of a ministry within a ministry. Right. Uh, when young people who are autistic aged out of a program, a lot of times they have nowhere to go uh, if their family can't support them full time or if they no longer have a family. So the U.S. Autis- autism homes set up uh, sort of group homes for people with autism. One of them was down the road from this Greek Orthodox Church. And the Greek Orthodox Church made these young men uh, in their early 20s feel welcome. They incorporated them as part of the community. They made them altar servers. And altar service play a really important part in uh, the Eastern Orthodox uh, liturgy. So they are playing a pivotal role where they're in front of people uh, in 
really emotional high points of the liturgy uh, where worshipers are looking at them, seeing them, and they are treated no differently than anyone else mm. who is who is certain. Uh, and it, it really honors the, the length, the image of God within them. Uh, one of the mothers who um, had a child who went there said they'd gone to other churches. Other churches turned them away. They said that uh, they were upset uh, because uh, the children couldn't hold still or they wouldn't be quiet, uh, which is, of course, a common uh, common complaint about all kinds of children. That's the greatest way to empty your church of children, make sure your church dies, is to turn away people who are not perfectly behaved when they're in church. So they instead incorporated them, made them part of the service, and it really honors the the image of God that is within them, which is the basis of all human rights. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the church I attend, we have a special needs ministry, and there's many times the uh, participants in that will be leading us in worship. And it is a, it truly, it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. I love what this church is doing. And you just, you touched on something there. You mentioned the Imago Day, and you mentioned it's the start of human rights. I was reading uh, an article. I, I, Bo Weingart, I don't know if you know him. Um, he's just one of those guys. He's one of those interesting thinkers. And sometimes he says something, you kind of, I get that. And other times you're kind of going, well, this was one of, a bit of both because he had been writing, he wrote recently in an article at Quillette, it's that, uh, about the line, you know, that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that they, among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This is perhaps the most venerated sentence in American history, and for good reason. The sentiment is expressed as a triumph of enlightenment philosophy, and they still resonate a hundred years later. And I'm kind of going, well, yeah, the, the enlightenment did talk about that, but I, I kind of look at this, I kind of go, that's a biblical truth, that that's the foundation, you know, the Imago Day. That's the foundation, as you just mentioned, of of human rights. Yeah, he needs to go back a little bit further to where the Enlightenment drew that idea. Exactly. It was not a new idea ex nihilo uh, with the Enlightenment philosophers. Certainly, certain portions of the Enlightenment, um, you know, the Scottish Enlightenment may be held to that more so than uh, the French Enlightenment, which ended up in the Reign of Terror. But, you know, when it, when it comes to uh, the idea of the Imago Dei, uh, this goes, of course, it's very scriptural, it's biblical, we're fearfully and wonderfully made, every one of us is made in the image and likeness of God according to the very beginning of uh, of the Bible. But then the early church fathers talk about this in such depth, one of the very earliest was a man named Irenaeus, Irenaeus of Léon in France, and he has a quotation that the glory of God is a human being fully alive. That St. Irenaeus was so early in the church he was taught by a man who was taught by the Apostle John. Mm-hmm. So about 150, 180 AD. And he's saying the glory of God is a man fully alive. And so we reflect God's glory. If we're just a, another animal, that sort of makes murdering one another morally licit. Uh, it says that we can engage in fratricide like Cain and Abel, but um, we can do so without any moral qualms because the animals kill one another all the time in this fallen world. Uh, there's no moral consequence to it. They don't answer to anyone for the moral actions. Uh, since we are made in the image and likeness of God, we are held accountable to the extent that we hold uh, that likeness to God. Uh, if we are created in his image, we have the inalienable right to life because he is the source of all life. We have the freedom of conscience because he is completely free and seeks people to worship him without coercion. 
Gospel, which is a very early uh, Christian doctrine that goes back at least to Tertullian. Mm-hmm. And then you have the right to private property to care for the families which we create, because that's the way that we create in an imitation of the way that he creates ex nihilo. So as he created us uh, out of nothing, we use um, we use our uh, God-given abilities to create, and we don't create out of nothing, but we create from creation. But we have the right to care for and tend that. In fact, we have the responsibility as part of our duty to be fruitful and multiply. So if we have those that uh, understanding of ourselves, then all of the rights that the Enlightenment later uh, spoke about are inherent uh, in the biblical creation, the biblical doctrine, uh, without any of the drawbacks of uh, utopianism, of uh, big government uh, meddling and things of that sort that uh, we ended up seeing in the reign of terror that uh, ended up closing out the French Enlightenment. Mm, Yeah. My mind is going in so many different directions, and there's so much we need to talk about yet. We have to break right now as we talk about you know, people being made in the image of God, that includes the unborn. And we want to turn our attention to that here in just a few moments because you responded to a statement by a politician who put down the idea, well, there's no such thing as a fetal heartbeat at six weeks. And I was kind of, really? Well, and then you wrote out the article already for us, so we're going to go through that here in just a moment because you really laid it out well about how this this politician is just factually wrong. And so we'll get to that in just a few moments here. Talking with Ben Johnson, the rights writer, he's also a senior reporter and editor with The Washington Stand. Our conversation continues here on Mornings with Carmen. I'm Paul Perot. This is Faith Radio. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show we do on the Faith Radio Network every day. There is a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources waiting for you to take advantage of and share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. Be sure to check us out on social media as well. Um, This is a community of believers, and we gather together here and We all need prayer, and, well, we'd love to pray for you. The Faith Radio team is serious about prayer. We pray for specific requests every single week when we gather on Tuesdays and Thursdays as a staff. So share your prayer request with us anonymously and securely on our website at MyFaithRadio.com, and then be assured of our prayers for you in the Spirit of Christ. Check it all out at MyFaithRadio.com. You got something to say if you're living. A guy who's never shy of something to say, Ben Johnson, joining me, because Ben, just the way you went with that discussion, going back into history to Irenaeus and Leon, it's like, ah, how do you do that? Well, I'm a man of limited talents, but you happen to hit on one of them. Oh, well, there <laughs> you go. Well, you also had something to write recently. Okay, a little background. It wasn't too many days ago. Stacey Abrams, who is a candidate for governor in Georgia, who is pro-abortion. She tried to make the statement because there's some states that have these six-week heartbeat laws. Does Georgia have one of those? They do. They do. Okay. I wasn't sure if they were one of the had. But anyway, she was trying to make the argument there's no such thing as a fetal heartbeat at six weeks. Weeks, And I was kind of going, I don't really think that's true. And I even saw... NPR and some other news organizations tried to justify what she said. They brought in their experts. 
And I'm just kind of going, no, let's get into fetal development. And that's, you're, you're such a diverse guy. And uh, you laid out in an article that's at the Washington stand. I saw it was uh, reprinted at what the Daily Signal. And so give us the rundown where you find Stacey Abrams wrong. Yeah, uh, Stacey Abrams uh, made this statement in front of a crowd. And uh, just so everyone knows what was said, she said, and this is a quote, there is no such thing as a heartbeat at six weeks. It's a manufactured sound designed to convince people that men have the right to take control of a woman's body. Now, both halves of that statement are incorrect. I, I primarily focus on the first half in the article at the Washington Stand, but I go through, uh, I, I quote, eight different embryological textbooks or peer-reviewed articles that talk about uh, a fetal heartbeat beginning uh, because they all use the term fetal heartbeat or how a heart begins. What she's talking about here is a common argument that has been made at least for um, the beginning of the the discussion of the heartbeat bill in Texas, uh, of course, passed last September. Um, and what what is often said is that at six weeks, there is no heart in a, in a baby. A baby does not have a heartbeat. Uh, since a baby doesn't have a fully formed heart at six weeks, then they can't have a heartbeat. Uh, what the ultrasound is picking up is electric activity inside the heart, uh, according to this argument. And, uh, for example, the Washington Post fact checker, Glenn Kessler, went with that exact same argument, uh, which NPR had uh, brought up at the time of the Texas bill. They mentioned in passing that the argument is being made by two abortionists. Um, in reality, I quote uh, a whole host of scientific uh, evidence here from people who are across the spectrum in terms of their abortion views, some of whose views I do not know. But um, they all say that a heartbeat begins at six weeks. Uh, the argument uh, specifically is that the heart begins as a very thin tube, and it doesn't have all four chambers until about week seven. Uh, so at six weeks, technically, it's not a fully developed heart. That's not the argument that's being made. It's a heart that is pumping blood. Uh, that begins at about the third week. In fact, uh, I linked to a video in the article where you can watch a fetal heartbeat uh, very early, about three to four weeks, pumping blood through the child's system. So you can see it with your own eyes. Um, the Cleveland Clinic, which is the top cardiac um, hospital in the United States, says at about six weeks, your baby's heartbeat can usually be detected. The Mayo Clinic used to have a, a comment along those lines. I wrote a fact check about this and quoted the Mayo Clinic in an article uh, at uh, the Daily Wire when I was over there. And a couple of months later, that statement disappeared. So <laughs> I don't I don't know. Uh, What'd you exactly do, Ben? What'd you do? Yeah. I, I tipped them off. We're on to them. So <laughs> but, but then you know, just to, to make sure I go through, as I say, about eight different textbooks, uh, which you know, some of them use very specific language. So this isn't you know, like a shorthand or. Or something of that sort. But when they discuss heartbeat, they use the word heart and beat, uh, even though they use other terms like embryogenesis and myocardium and things of that sort, uh, vertebrate embryos and so on. When they talk about the heartbeat, they use very simple language because it's a very simple concept unless you're trying to skew the reality. Mm. So, again, the science is there. I mean, what, what Stacey Abrams said was incorrect. And as pro-lifers, we're on firm, firm footing here as far as the heartbeat and the life of the child. 
Very much. And even the second half of the statement about how uh, the heartbeat was uh, the sound is manufactured in order to uh, to convince uh, people a vast conspiracy that men should control women's bodies. Uh, they, that's not the way that the Doppler ultrasound works. I, I have the uh, description in the article, but basically it sends out sound waves. Uh, if it detects blood circulation, the sound waves change. So it's not electric activity. It's it's noting actual blood circulation. Right, right. Well, I have a few minutes left here, and we want to quickly go through something. Now, since uh, the Dobbs decision put the abortion decisions back on the individual states, there are five states this uh, this fall with the uh, the general election in November that uh, have abortion initiatives on the ballot. Can you quickly run through those? Sure. And matter of fact, three of them are very similar. Uh, the states of Michigan, California and Vermont have constitutional amendments which would say that their state constitution uh, supports and recognizes a right to abortion. Uh, and many, many of these would strike down all pro-life laws in those states. Uh, for example, in Michigan, where it's probably the uh, the closest to a toss-up, certainly California and Vermont uh, are not uh, likely to uh, to um, have a, a pro-life majority in, among the voters who are turning out. But in Michigan, where it's uh, somewhat more contested, uh, this would strike down, for example, the partial birth abortion ban that the state has in place, possibly also some of the health provisions that have been passed in order to protect women from predatory uh, abortionists who have harmed women in the past in that state. Mm. In Kentucky, it's the exact opposite. Kentucky is trying to uh, pass a state uh, constitutional amendment saying that the Constitution does not contain a right to abortion. That's important because uh, judicial activists have said since the the Roe v. Wade decision has been overturned where they began to uh, see a right to abortion in the Constitution for the first time 50 years ago, now they want to do the same thing at the state level. Judicial activists can hijack the language of the state constitutions and read in their own social agenda, saying that the state constitution guarantees a right to abortion. So they hope to clarify that this doesn't. Now, this is similar to what happened in Kansas. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had the Love Them Both initiative, and then that ended up failing uh, because the pro-life movement was not clear enough about what it actually did. And the uh, pro-abortion movement, which was heavily financed out of state, Uh, lied about what it would do. They said it would completely ban all abortions. And all it is saying is that the Constitution does not recognize this as a right so that you can't create it. Uh, It's very important that people understand that distinction. Mm. Then very simply in Montana, the the easiest of them all, uh, there's a a provision that would say that if abortionists deliver a baby alive during a botched abortion, they have to offer medical care. Its opponents call it, and I quote, extreme. (laughs) Really? When when all you've got is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. I Um, guess. Yeah. Okay. Um, If you're looking for summer of these, uh, the article that we're both referencing there about these different initiatives, it's at World News Group. Uh, Leah Savas is the uh, writer there. We'll have the link in the show notes as well as a link to to Ben's article uh, refuting Stacey Abrams' statement about no heartbeat at six weeks. We'll have that all again in the show notes on Mornings with Carmen when we post the podcast. Hey, Ben, thanks again for joining us here on Faith Radio. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you, and God bless. All right. This is Faith Radio and Mornings with Carmen. Let's uh, listen to Max Licato.
This is Mornings with Carmen on Faith Radio. I'm Paul Perot filling in again today and tomorrow. Maybe you've heard the C.S. Lowe statement about how God speaks to, speaks to us through his word and screams at us in our pain. Well, there was a competition held recently in England to find compelling theologians and speakers. And the winner of this this theology slam was called is Amanda Higgins, a Baptist theology student who wrote about her emergence from an abusive relationship. Theology Slam invited people between the ages of 18 and 35 to write a 500-word essay on contemporary issues and present their addresses to a panel of judges. Well, according to the Church Times out of uh, the U.K., Amanda Higgins compared her own post-traumatic stress disorder following an abusive relationship to the uncertainty and trauma underpinning the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament. She said, as I found myself in recovery, I found myself holding the letter to the Hebrews. And and as I grappled with it, she said, and I grappled with my own pain, I started to see how uncertainty and trauma underpin this masterfully anonymous theological uh, address. The author of the Hebrews, she adds, was addressing a traumatized congregation whose members had suffered beatings, looting, and imprisonment. It's amazing how God worked his word to help into uh, Amanda Higgins' life to heal her, bring some healing. Trauma can lead people to God. Unfortunately, trauma can also lead people away from God, especially if that trauma was caused even in part by Christians. Uh, Maybe you've heard people object to Christianity with the argument, it's just a white man's religion. It's just the religion to oppress women and minorities. Well, first off, is that true? If not, and I don't think it is, how do you help others see the truth? That how is just as important as the information. And Abdu Murray is going to be joining us in just a few moments to help us understand the importance of the how and the why behind that how, too. This is Mornings with Carmen. I'm Paul Perot filling in. This is Faith Radio. This is Mornings with Carmen. I'm Paul Perot filling in here on Faith Radio. Okay, have you ever watched a video from some cultural commentator? And you see this person arguing with another person over a point, and this first person is laying down his argument, sometimes very forcefully, even gracelessly, in an effort to own the opponent. (laughs) Maybe you're agreeing, okay, on the facts with the commentator who's hosting the video, Sometimes you get this, yeah, moment, your, your, your side is winning, even though the opponent in the, uh, in the video is just putting up more walls and is just getting more hurt. In the realm of Christian apologetics, is that truly winning? I ask that because as I've been reading a book by Abdu Murray called More Than a White Man's Religion, I was kind of struck by that. And Abdu is joining us right now here on uh, Faith Radio on Mornings with Carmen. Good morning, Abdu. Good morning, Paul. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, well, thanks for getting up so early to join us. <laughs> yeah, I got to say, I really appreciated uh, that you wrote this book from a place of brokenness. And partly due to the issues, well, going through the U.S. right now, you're first off a minority. But even beyond that, you're also part of Ravi Zacharias Ministries, which com- crumbled due to an abuse allegation, an abuse by the uh, the founder. Yeah. And I don't want to dwell delve into the details. Others have done that. We don't need to do that. 
but you were part of the ministry, and I want to hear from you how this affected you personally. And I actually do uh, uh, address that in the preface to the book. Um, it's been, uh, oops, sorry, um, it's been um, uh, a tough journey because, you know, I wrote the section on women um, and Jesus, right, I finished it just as the um, uh, report about Robbie's conduct had come out. And so it was one of these sort of bizarre juxtapositions where you see the contrast of who Jesus actually is uh, compared to us. And you see it so clearly and so starkly. Um, and so, you know, one of the things I, I, I want to say is that I'm a blemished person who writes for blemished people. Um, and we like to think of ourselves as consistently always upholding the, the cause of the vulnerable, whether it's because of, you know, racial injustice or gender inequalities or whatever it might be. Um, but by comparison, Christ is the unblemished one, and he, he became vulnerable for the sake of the vulnerable and exercises power for the sake of the vulnerable and for the powerful to redeem us all. And so it was a journey for me, and it remains a journey. There's still a lot more I'm learning. Um, people think that when you write a book, you're an expert on everything related to that book. And the reality is any author who is being honest with you will say that you learn more while writing. And then you learn more in the aftermath of writing than you ever did by somebody who thinks you're an expert on something. So it's been a humbling process and one that's caused tons of self-reflection. And I hope that this book actually helps others process through um, some really difficult but important issues we all have to go through. I, I'm kind of of the opinion right now that there are so many open traumas, open uh, wounds that are causing a lot of, well, causing a lot of the falling away of the faith, but even just mm. a lot of the objections. Um, yeah. the, the walls are up right now, and yes, there's the information, there's the factual issues in, in the case, but then there's also, there's the emotion, there, there's, the, there's the wall people build up as protection, against further trauma, which I kind of get. We'll, we'll kind of touch on that. As we're looking at your book, um, which again is called More Than a White Man's Religion, and yes, we do have copies we'll be giving away. We have a handful. If you'd like to get in on the drawing, text the word book to 877-933-2484. You start out the book with an illustration. You know, when we look at the claim about Christianity being just a white man's religion used to oppress others or so on and so forth, you, you start out with this vision, this illustration about this commuter train in India. And it's an interesting yeah. word picture. I want you to share that word picture because I think it would help our listeners understand, okay, this is more than just a factual problem. There's stuff right. underneath. Yeah, there's a cultural surge. So I was sitting in an airport um, uh, lounge, uh, uh, actually on my way in India to another city in India, and I saw this documentary on the train system in India. And what you saw was uh, there were people by the thousands who were flooding to get on these trains, quite literally not only in the train, but on top of the trains in order to get to work. And there's a surge of humanity that goes on there. And people were actually willing to risk their lives. They needed the money so badly that they were, uh, because of their, their economic situation, that they're willing to risk their lives by sitting on top of a train unsecured in order to get to work and get back home. And someone would die pretty much every day on this. That's how desperate the situation was. But then if you were trying to get off the train, when the sea of humanity came 
uh, towards you. It was almost impossible, like a salmon swimming upstream, but the stream is almost impossible to resist. And I feel like there's a cultural surge that is running away from Christianity and onto a train that takes us away from Christianity. And the the fuel, the coal that, that fuels that train is the hurts of past racial issues. And I think the perception and the realities of certain gender inequality issues, you know, with the rise of Me Too and all these things. And so we have these the, the, these hurts that are real and honest and we need to address them. But we're actually jumping onto a train that's leading away, speeding away from, I think, the actual destination we need to go to. In other words, the culture is saying, get on this train that speeds you away from Christianity because Christianity is the, is, is the, is the source of all of our problems. What I try to argue in the book is that we need to get back on a different train and maybe resist the surge and try to get onto a different train that leads us towards Christianity. Because what I try to sustain in the book is that Christianity, the message of the gospel and the Bible itself and the life of Jesus are the cures for the very things they're being blamed for. Mm, but helping people to see that. To get yeah. beyond their perceptions, to get beyond, I mean, it's like you said, a person, say they're in the middle of the train, they come to their train stop, they're trying to get out, but gobs of people are trying to come. There's there's a cultural um, surge against it. There's another word picture you brought up, too. Not only is there a cultural surge, there's also, okay, backing up, mm-hmm. um, Abdu, just like you, I'm not a big board game person. <laughs> okay, when my family gets together to do board games, I'll yeah. sometimes play along. Most of them are just kind of, yeah, whatever. Yeah. You have that with your kids, but you mm-hmm. are willing, you're most willing. Let me put it that way. You're most willing to play what game? Googly eyes with my kids. <laughs> okay. Googly eyes. Okay, for yeah, those now who Now we're getting serious and deep right now, right? <laughs> yes, we are getting so deep, so serious. <laughs> for those who've never played googly eyes, because I haven't, mm-hmm. uh, tell me about it. Yeah, so it's this game where you put, uh, there's these glasses that give you various degrees of distorting your vision. And so the game is essentially you and a teammate are uh, given a card. One of you uh, knows what the card is and you know what the image you're supposed to draw is. And you have these googly eye glasses on. So you draw an image on paper with this, these, uh, these glasses that distort your view. And your, your, your teammate's supposed to guess what it is you've tried to draw with this, this sort of visual, you know, distortion you have. There's another way you flip it too, is that at another round, not only so you don't have the gooey eyes on, you draw unimpeded what the card says, but your teammate has the glasses on and can't really see what you've drawn. And so they have to guess what it is based on the distortions of their glasses. So it's kind of a fun game. Everyone looks sort of ridiculous, but it distorts reality. And the point of the game is to try to see how can you get past the distortions of reality to see what someone's trying to communicate. And so the word picture I use in in, in the book is essentially that our hurts and they're real and they're not they're not misperceptions of reality. Our hurts are real, but we're, tr- we're trying to communicate a message that can say the hurts can be addressed and it's found in the gospels. But our hurts, whether it's because of sexism or racism, whatever it is, um, have distorted our, our, our vision. But by the way, our defensiveness about it has distorted our vision about mm. what someone else's hurts might be. And so we have this almost impasse. But I think the gospel is the lens by which we can actually clear up some things if we just take a sincere look and say, does this have anything real to offer me? Or am I just going to believe the current social um, uh, message that uh, Christianity is a white male religion? 
Um, and there's good reasons to believe it's not. Um, and it's for all people. It's not, not a white man's religion. It is for white males, but it's also for non-white males and also for um, non-white, non-males. It's for everybody. It is for everybody. We're going to dig into this more deeply in just a few moments um, as we're talking with Abdu Murray. His latest book is More Than a White Man's Religion. By the way, I, I forgot to mention, for people who want to connect with Abdu, uh, your ministry right now is Embrace the Truth. So EmbraceTheTruth.org. Mm-hmm. You can also find Abdu on Twitter. Now, we do have a few copies of this new book, More Than a White Man's Religion, to give away. If you'd like to get in on the drawing, again, 877-933-2484. Text the word BOOK to that number, 877-933-2484 to get in on the drawing. I'm Paul Perot. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen here on Faith Radio. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. We need to be This is Mornings with Carmen on Faith Radio. I'm Paul Perot. We're talking with Abdu Murray. If you've ever struggled to explain to somebody about your faith and they're putting up the objections, ah, Christianity, it's a, it's a white man's religion. Well, Abdu has the book for you, More Than a White Man, to help you not only know the facts, but again, Abdu, I, again, I love the position you've taken in this book, the, uh, the, heart direction you've taken in the book, because you were not just dealing with facts here. We're dealing with the pain that people have felt due to issues of racism, sexism, and a whole bunch of issues. And that's what you are trying to help help us tackle as well as just making sure we know the facts, right? Absolutely. You you can give someone a bunch of facts, but you can give that, give it almost in a, in a clinical way. Um, that doesn't actually address the hurt and you're talking right past them. And they're saying, did you acknowledge me as a person? And by way of just a quick um, detour for a moment, the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter four, verses five and six, and this is really the heart of what I was trying to get at in everything I write. Really, I try to emulate what Paul says when he says, let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, so you may know how you ought to answer each person. What's fascinating is that Paul doesn't say answer each question or each objection or each controversy. He says answer each person because questions, objections, and controversies don't need answers, but people do, but they express them through their questions, objections, and controversies. So we are to answer people. So you can give a bunch of facts. If you have not love, you are but a sounding gong. But if you have love in the middle of it, you understand someone's hurts, that's when you reach them. My mind just went, (laughs) (laughs) well, let's start going through the book and we're going to do both things. We're going to look at the facts, but then we're going to look at the hard issues so we can answer the person as you were talking about. Now, the, the book title is More Than a White man's religion uh, that's three different categories there you have the white yep. the man's and the religion we're not going to have time to go through all of them let's start out in order white is mm-hmm. is christianity just the religion of white people 
Yeah, now this is fascinating because uh, I go through a, a lot of detail in the book about why this isn't the case, but I've often wondered, how did we get here? Yeah. And frankly, I thought that when I wasn't a Christian, I came from a Muslim background, actually, and I thought this was a religion for white people. It's a white Western imperialistic religion because most of the people I knew at the time who were Christians were white people. Um, but it's funny because globally speaking, right now in the present day, globally speaking, most Christians are not white or male. They're actually people of color who are female. Now, that isn't the, the, there's a good almost half and half split amongst the females and males in Christianity, but there's a large number of women. I, I even think that by the latest polls, and I could be wrong about this, that the majority of believers are actually women. Um, and this is not due to co colonialism, by the way. This is not due to the fact that Christianity was imported and then forced upon people in Africa, the Middle East, or Asia. Um, no, this is actually the rise of Christianity, and I document this, the rise of Christianity in the global South and in the global church is actually among non-white people after colonialism's influence has waned. And frankly, if someone says, well, there's the vestiges of colonialism and these poor folks don't realize they've been brainwashed, that sounds a little racist to me, um, to say that they don't have a mind of their own and they couldn't come to a conclusion and uh, to a, a faith on their own by examining the merits of it. Um, no, the, the, the church is not mostly white and the church is not mostly male. Um, what we have actually is a phenomenon where we're seeing people who are saying Christianity is a white male religion. Um, the people who are saying it are usually in the West and they're usually white males who are saying it. Um, so the people who are tending to leave, and I, I can't, I don't want to downplay that there are people who are deconverting or deconstructing um, from various ethnic uh, minorities. That is happening, but it's not happening nearly in the numbers of the white people who are leaving right. the Christian faith. Um, so uh, empirically, as of today, it's not a white male religion. Now, the accusation, though, is maybe Christianity uh, was um, structured in a way to favor white males. But the historical reality behind this is that the Roman Empire uh, and I document this, and Tom Holland in his book, Dominion, uh, actually documents this. He intended to write a book that said that everything good in the West came from the Romans. But then he actually looked into it and he saw that the Romans, uh, not so great. Um, and in fact, anything that good that came from the Roman Empire started with Christianity. In other words, the Romans didn't fashion, shape, mold Christianity to make to be the oppressive religion of, the, of minorities and women. Rather, it was the olive-skinned religion of the Middle East that influenced uh, European Rome for the better, to end the slavery, to end um, inequalities. Uh, this was the Christian message that changed these things for the better. In fact, yes, the Bible has been misused by white slavers, for example, mm -hmm. to justify an evil practice, to baptize an evil practice. But you know what they had to do to do this? And you can buy a copy of this right now on Amazon if you wanted to. They had to create what's called the slave Bible. In other words, there are parts of the Bible that had to be redacted, actually physically removed, like Exodus and parts of Leviticus and parts of Deuteronomy and parts of the New Testament because they preached equality and liberation. Yeah. And so they they recognized that if slaves got a hold of this book and it was inevitable that they were going to, they would want to seek their equality because of the Bible. They would not 
be justified in believing that they should remain slaves because of the Bible, and the slavers knew it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there, there, you know, there's this wonderful quote by Frederick Douglass, and if 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 your listeners are haven't read more of Frederick Douglass, I, I beg you to do so. My goodness, the erudition is just uh, unparalleled. He basically says this, and he's talking about Christianity as a religion of this land, meaning America, at the time of slavery. So please put it in context. And he says between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ. As a former slave, he says, I recognize the widest possible difference, so wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. I love, he says, the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slaveholding, woman-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. Now, that's not saying that America is not a Christian, you know, based uh, based in Christian principles. It is. Mm-hmm. He was saying that the Christianity that was corrupted to use to uh, to enslave people by white people is not the Christianity of Christ, and he was right. And the good news is, is that Christianity was the the impetus for the abolition movement and for the women's suffrage movement and for the equalities we enjoy today. Mm. You know, I was going to ask you to. You know, and we're kind of running out of time here. I was going to ask you to uh, help people who have been hurt in the past, or maybe they've been hurt by mm-hmm. racism, or some of these wounds. You did it anyway. You, you, you beat me to the punch by explaining, um, you know, people like Frederick Douglass and how he handled the wounds yeah. that he saw in his society. One more thing, and if you have like a minute, I want you to sure, comment on this, because sometimes I feel we, especially in the evangelical church here in America, we kind of tunnel vision in our own world. We really need to look outside of our world and look at what God is doing in places like China, some other their people, their theologians, places like Iran. We need to think even even what's happening in the African-American church community, there's some really good thinkers there who can mm. challenge us. Absolutely. We need to start locking arm in arm and not getting so defensive. We need to be able to say, okay, look, there are some, there's, there's some pockmarks on our history and even on our present. Um, but we need to be able to, uh, lock arm in arm. You know, there was a movement here. I live in the Detroit area and there was a movement called the each movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone a chance to hear. And it was, uh, uh, a, a cross denominational effort to actually preach the gospel through good words and good deeds. And what you saw was something remarkable. It was that Sunday, which is often chided as the most segregated day in America, um, where you have black churches and white churches. What you started to see were, were black pastors and white pastors sort of exchanging and visiting each other's churches and preaching at each other's churches and locking arm in arm to get something done, to rectify certain wrongs and certain issues within our, our society. And the church became a bold witness for it. So if we look to history, you know, Mark Twain once said, history does not repeat, but it does rhyme. Yeah. Um, and he's right. I think that there is a song we can all be part of, and we can be one of the stanzas in that poem or in that song if we actually take the, the perspectives of other people and become ambassadors, uh, especially in the church, because I do believe the church is God's plan A for, um, for the world. Um, uh, it is his body, and we are to be um, a, a diverse mosaic, but we are to be unified at the same time, and I believe we can do it. I, I think so. Again, Abdu, thank you. His new book is More Than a White Man's Religion, Why the Gospel Has Never Been Merely White, Male-Centered, or Just Another Religion. We are giving away copies. Uh, we do have a handful, so if you want to get in a drawing, 
Text the word book to 877-933-2484. Abdu, thank you again for joining us here on Mornings with Carmen. It was a real pleasure, Paul. Thanks for having me. It was. Well, again, this is Mornings with Carmen here on Faith Radio. And if you'd like to hear this conversation again or any of the conversations from Mornings with Carmen or really any of the Faith Radio shows like uh, Susie Larson Live or Afternoons with Bill, you can find the podcast on our website at MyFaithRadio.com. Now, if you don't have our app, Really, you need to download our app. Go to the go on your app store, get the Faith Radio app. That way you can listen to the live stream as well. Well, as well as listen to the podcast of the varied shows that are Faith Radio originals. So again, thank you for listening. I'm Paul Pro. This is Mornings with Carmen. Another hour straight ahead here on Faith Radio. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.